Well, I'd encourage you to open up to James chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning, James chapter 1. The information age makes the cultivation of wisdom as challenging as doing a crossword puzzle during an airplane crash. And the current global pandemic has only heightened the difficulty in growing in wisdom. Now, of course, most of us don't even think about wisdom anymore. That's not a topic we're all that concerned with. Most of us are are concerned and are satisfied with a very shallow level of information. I mean, we want facts, we want sound bites, we want articles, news sources that only confirm and support our previously held opinions. We don't even have time to process the information that we receive before the next wave of information crashes over us and drowns us. We have so much information that we are like a man who owns a Home Depot, but who doesn't know how to use a hammer. All the information in the world is accessible to us, and most of the time we don't know what to do with it other than drown in it. I mean, this situation is understandable in the broader culture. It's understandable as those in the broader culture are carried away by this river of data and information. But as Christians, we need to resist being carried away by the information and slow down a little bit and cultivate wisdom. The Bible, as a book, stirs a longing for God's wisdom in us. And that is precisely what we need now more than ever. In the book of Proverbs is probably the book you think of first when you think about wisdom, and it certainly is a book of wisdom. And Proverbs presents wisdom to us, not as something that is hidden from us, but it presents wisdom to us, the author does, as a woman who is crying out in the street and calling for us to come and to receive wisdom. Most of the time, unfortunately, we ignorantly pass by without even listening to the call. Proverbs chapter 1 puts it this way, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice at the head of the noisy streets. Just as I'm reading that, noisy streets certainly sounds like the flow of information that we have today. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you, will make my words known to you. And the point is, is that we can cultivate God's wisdom, his insight, if We will see our need for it if we'll hear the cry of wisdom and respond and know that we need it. And then if we will pursue wisdom in the right places. I mean, that's the first step. You have to know where to find it. And I'm convinced that the the nurture of wisdom in our lives is not just something that the Old Testament does. And we tend to think of it like that. There are wisdom books in the Old Testament. Certainly there are. We think of Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. Those are the wisdom books in our minds. 
But wisdom didn't die out when Jesus arrived on the scene. I mean, he is called the wisdom of God, and we develop wisdom, skill in living through the application of his teaching to our lives. And you will see the application of Christ's teaching to our lives in the book that we are going to begin studying today, the book of James. So if you're not there, James 1 and verse 1 is where we'll be. This morning, in this first verse of this book, I want to do two things to introduce the whole book to us. I want to talk about the author of the book. Obviously, it's James. We'll talk about which James. And then I want to talk about the aim that he is writing for, the message that he's conveying. So author and aim are the two things that we'll be doing this morning. Knowing the background of the author, knowing specifically which James we're talking about will be really important for us to understand the book and give us a better sense of where he's writing from and what sort of background he has. And then we need to know the whole scope of the book, which is a little bit difficult to get at in this book, but I think we can pinpoint it with some accuracy. So that's what I want to do this morning, the author of the book and the aim, and we'll start with the author. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 1, it's obviously quite clear that a man named James wrote this book. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not have thought about this before, but the question is, which James? There are pretty much two options that are worth considering. There's a third option that says that someone used the name of James as sort of a pen name, a pseudonym, later on and wrote it, but we're not going to really put much stock into that. But there are two options worth considering for us this morning. First of all, this could have been written by James the Apostle the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder. I mean, you know about James. You've read about him in the Gospels. He's mentioned in all the lists of the apostles, the 12 disciples that we get. He's mentioned several times in the stories involving his brother John. He's one of the inner circle, right? The the three closest disciples to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He's been with Jesus from the beginning, One of his disciples, he walked with him during his years of ministry up to the crucifixion. He was with him. I mean, we have biblical books by the other two members of the inner circle, by Peter and by John. And so it would actually make sense to have a book by the third member of the inner circle of disciples, James. So at this point, maybe we're thinking, man, this could have been the guy that wrote this book. Unfortunately, Acts chapter 12 sort of dispels that thinking very quickly. In Acts chapter 12, we read this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And so chances are very slim that this James wrote this book early, early on as the church was developing, And here you can see that he dies rather quickly after the resurrection and before this book was written. Now, there's another key James in the New Testament that I am convinced wrote this letter. And I think it will be very, very beneficial to you to hear about his development and his background. Did you know that Jesus had a brother who was named James? 
And it's important that we grasp his story in order to get the message of this book. Now, he's not mentioned a lot in the Gospels. You may not have heard of him very often, but we can take passages of Scripture, as I'm going to do this morning, and piece together his story and understand where he's coming from. In Matthew 13, in verse 55, in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, we find out that Jesus had a brother named James. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Now, there are several times in the Gospels, so we find out he has a brother named James, and there are several times in the Gospels where we see Jesus' family pursuing him. They're coming after him, and they're unable to get access to him because the crowds are around him. And they seem a little upset about this. You can read about one of these examples. I'll, I'll show it to you this morning in, oops, I didn't put the, uh, the passage up there. I'll show it to you from Mark chapter 3. You'll just have to listen as I read it, but verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came. You can see his brothers there. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so they're seeking him, his family, his biological family is seeking him, and they can't get access to him. And Jesus does some teaching about who really is his brother and mother's and mother and sister. And there's good reason to believe from statements like this, that his family were not very happy with this. It didn't sit particularly well with them. You don't have to turn there, but in Mark chapter 6, a few chapters after what we just saw here, Jesus returns to his hometown in Nazareth. And as he returns there, he is met with a mixture of rejection and unbelief, resistance. We don't know for sure, but most likely that included his biological family, his sisters and his brothers. But we do find out explicitly in John chapter 7, which I think I have that on the screen, there we go, we do find out in John chapter 7 that his brothers, his biological brothers, do reject him. Look here. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They're challenging him. And look what John says. For not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers at this point, even though they'd seen him do these works, were skeptical. They rejected the idea that he was the Messiah, God's chosen and sent one. And then if you go through the rest of the Gospels, you don't really read anything else about his brothers or about James in particular. I mean, you don't see him as present at the crucifixion. You don't read anything about a change in his beliefs at all. But then you get to that passage after the resurrection, the passage that I read earlier from Acts chapter 12, where Herod is going around killing members of the church and he kills James, the other James, the brother of John. And I want you to notice what happens throughout the rest of that passage. It's probably familiar to you. 
But after Herod puts James to death, look what he does. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And so he goes after Peter and he arrests him. And you know this story. It's a very famous story in the book of Acts where Peter gets let out of prison in the middle of the night by an angel and he walks through the streets uh, in the middle of the night and ends up at this house where they're having a prayer meeting for Peter and he knocks on the door and the servant girl comes to the door and she's so amazed that it's Peter at the door that she doesn't even bother to let him in. She runs back inside and tells everyone that Peter's at the door And they're like, well, why didn't you let him in? And they go and let him in. And he begins to explain what's happened to him. And look what he says in Acts 12 and verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And look at this. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Well, it's obviously not the James who had been killed just earlier in this chapter. So this is James, the brother of Jesus. So something happened. Peter wants him to know what has happened because at some point along the way, he has clearly become a believer in his brother as the Messiah. And at some point, he's become a significant enough leader in the church in Jerusalem for Peter to target him as someone that needs to know what is happening. Well, that's intriguing. So what happened in the meantime? Well, we don't have a long description of a conversion experience, but we do have these very interesting words from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember this passage where he's talking about the resurrection of Christ and how Jesus appeared to all of these different people and eventually he appeared to Paul? Look what he says here. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Fascinating. We're short on details. We really don't know exactly what happened, but Paul specifically mentions the resurrected Christ appearing to his brother. That's fascinating. Maybe this was a conversion experience similar to Paul's. James had rejected his brother, not believed in him, had seen that he'd been crucified, and then his resurrected brother appears to him proclaiming that he's the true king and the Messiah. And James, at that moment, perhaps, was converted. We don't know for sure, but it certainly is an interesting development of events. And then what we do know is that after this, it becomes clear quite quickly, that's a lot of the same syllable or the same sound right in a row, It becomes clear very quickly that James, the brother of Jesus, is a very important and significant leader in the Jerusalem church, which would have been the largest church at that time. So you've got this whole series of events in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas go out and they're ministering to Gentiles and they're starting to travel more widely and it's becoming very clear that the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit from God. 
And they're doing this, this is happening apart from circumcision, apart from keeping the Jewish law, the Old Testament law. And so they come back to Jerusalem, to the main church, the gathered leadership of the Jerusalem church, and they report about what God has been doing among the Gentiles. And so they give this report, and the people are talking about it, and then at the very end of this discussion, James, the brother of Jesus, stands up, and he gives the definitive statement and sort of brings everything to conclusion. He's obviously a significant leader in the church at this time. I mean, look at his words. Look at what happened. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And then James goes on here to quote the Old Testament and talk about the restoration of Israel that is happening through the Lord Jesus. And then look at verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And so his words carry significant weight with the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. And he makes a very important decision here and influences the trajectory of the church in the right way by not requiring the Old Testament law and circumcision of Gentile believers. Of course, at this time, the Jerusalem church would have been the biggest and the most influential church. And so James is a key leader positioned in this church. Even Paul recognized that. I mean, he knew the importance of reporting back to James. And look what Paul says in Galatians 2.9. And when James and Cephas and John, James, Peter, and John, James, the brother of Jesus, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul talking about Acts 15 and this situation here. So Paul recognizes James, the brother of Jesus, as an important leader. Now, when you and I read our New Testament, obviously Paul wrote a whole bunch of letters in the New Testament. He is, in many ways, the primary author and influencer in the church as we perceive it. And so we tend to put a lot of weight on what he said. But it's fascinating here to get this background on James and understand who he was, because we have a letter that was written here from a man who was profoundly significant and influential in the early church. I mean, it's quite easy to think of Paul as sort of the dominant theologian of the early New Testament church. But we can't ignore James and his teaching in this letter. He was a man who had been profoundly changed by the resurrection. I mean, that much is clear from 1 Corinthians 15. And he served the Lord Jesus for many, many years in an influential role as the church was growing. I mean, look how he understands himself. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 1. Look here. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, when you read those words now, hopefully knowing who this is, the brother of Jesus, who was changed by a resurrection appearance, was brought from unbelief to belief, he's saying these things, that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ about his brother, Jesus. I mean, he 
calls himself a servant of his brother, and he puts his brother in the same line as God. He sees them as the same person. He's a bondservant of both of them because they are to be identified as equal and as one. He has a completely different understanding now of who his brother was. And to be a, a servant here, what he says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's sort of two sides to this description. We tend to think of a, a servant as sort of a lowly position. And so there is an aspect of humility to this. He obeys the authority that has been given to him or that has been placed over him, God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and he submits to their authority. But there's also a side of calling yourself a servant of God that puts James in a line of great servants of the Lord from the Old Testament. Men like Moses and David and the prophets were servants of God. And so James is using this title to say, I'm under the authority and I obey my master. But he's also using it to say, I therefore have the authority to teach and to instruct based on who I serve. And his allegiance here is to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the culmination of the Old Testament, the Messiah of God. I want you to notice, too, in verse 1 here, he says that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. It's interesting to notice who he's writing to here. I mean, we saw previously that James, his primary ministry was to the Jews. He was the leader or one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And even Paul understood that he and Barnabas were going to the Gentiles. James, Peter, mainly were ministering to the Jews. And James is writing this letter in that, that sort of keeping, in that fitting way of his ministry toward Jews. He saw, James saw, the work of Jesus as the restoration of Israel from exile. You can go back and look at this in Acts chapter 15 uh, at that Jerusalem council, but he very much uses an Old Testament quote to say that Israel is being restored now and that in that restoration, it will not only be ethnic Jews, but it will be Gentiles as well that will make up God's people. But here he's saying that he's targeting this book specifically to those who are of the house of Israel who are dispersed and it's not to anyone who's an ethnic Jew, but it's to those who have believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, that doesn't exclude you and I as Gentiles from listening and reading and applying this book at all. But James very much viewed the church as a restoration of Israel, and so he's writing in keeping with that. So that's all the background to who this guy was who wrote this letter and maybe why he was writing it at this time to this group of people. What's he hoping to accomplish? That's our second point this morning. We've seen the author. Now let's look quickly at his aim. The title for this whole series is called Wisdom for Wholeness. I think that's what James is really trying to get at in writing this letter. He wants to train believers to live wisely, but wisdom is not the end goal. Wisdom is oriented toward developing you and I toward completeness and toward wholeness. 
and toward maturity. And so I want to break down in explaining this title to you and getting the aim of the book, I want to break down both of those words, wisdom and wholeness, and then I want to try to put them back together. So let's talk about wisdom first. Why did I choose wisdom as, a, as at least part of the main theme of the book of James? I mean, it, the words wisdom only come up a couple of times. Well, I want to show you, maybe if you've read through James before, it's, it's kind of hard to get the structure of what's happening. I mean, Ephesians seemed to be pretty easy, right? There's two big sections to it. James, it's a little more difficult. It sort of feels random, like he's jumping from topic to topic, But I would encourage you to go back and read the book of James this week, and I'm going to show you how James breaks down each section, and I want you to look for these as you read through it. So each section in the book of of James begins with a direct address to my brothers or my beloved brothers. And when he addresses the people reading it with that title, he also pairs that with a command. So there's a command and a direct address that go together. And those begin a section of the book. So let me show you this. Look at chapter one and verse two. Count it all joy, there's a command, my brothers. So he's showing you that he's beginning a section there. Go down to verse 16, begin another section. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, right? I mean, they're command and Direct address. Go down to chapter 2 and verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Command, direct address. One more. Look at verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And he goes on there to explain that. And so if you continue to read through the book of James, in almost every section, you'll see it begin with a command and a direct address. But when you get to chapter 3, flip over to chapter 3 and verse 13, here you get a new topic that begins not with a direct address, but with a question. And so I think James is doing this to sort of portion this section off and show you this is the peak This is the high point of the book. The whole book is built around the concepts that are given in this section, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. This carries the main topic of the book. Well, what is it? Let me read this section to you. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is giving us two different paths here, which is typical of wisdom literature. You can pursue wisdom from above, or you can pursue earthly wisdom. This is the centerpiece of the book, I think. 
Wisdom means the full integration of what you say you believe and the way you live. It's the coming together of those two aspects of your life. It's the working out of your stated beliefs, of your theology. It's the working out of those things in your daily life. And it's doing it in a consistent and faithful manner. Look what he says again in verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Your good conduct shows that you are cultivating wisdom and growing in wisdom. One author said it this way, Wisdom teaching frequently takes previous revelation given by God and reapplies it for a new audience and context. And that's what I think James is wanting us to do, to take this teaching and then to have the skill and the ability to apply it to our current cultural context almost 2,000 years later. But as he's teaching about the wisdom from above, which runs throughout this whole book, giving you examples of what wisdom from above looks like, that wisdom is always oriented toward a greater goal. And it's oriented toward the goal of coming to wholeness or completeness in your life, toward growing to maturity, toward being whole. Look back to chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials have a purpose. There's a greater goal. And responding in wisdom to trials brings us to perfection and completeness. Now, that word perfect doesn't mean absolutely free from sin in every thought and action. But what it does mean is when something is perfect, it, is, it has attained the highest standard. It is complete. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians 4, verse 13, that we, in church ministry, the goal of church ministry is maturity. It's completeness. It's adulthood, that we would no longer be children that we would attain to that through ministry in the church. And so the one who is perfect or complete doesn't settle for halfway measures. This person is an expert in his or her craft. And their craft is living according to the word of God. It's skill in living. It's wise actions, thinking, and motivations. And so James, in this passage, or in this book, wants to teach us wisdom from God that leads us to completion or to wholeness. Now, it's very, I think, easy sometimes to think of wisdom as separate from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We sort of think of wisdom as skill for living and it has to do with kind of this practical, boots-on-the-ground sort of everyday life. And so people sometimes will read the book of James as if it has nothing to do with the gospel and a changed life from the gospel. Wisdom in that way of viewing it sort of amounts to good advice, common sense. But 
James's letter is not just a, a list of topics that you can approach and good advice to handle those things. His goal is not to just teach us to navigate life with more skill and ability. He understands at the most fundamental level that he is under the authority of Almighty God and he understands, as we saw in verse 1, that he has been changed by the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And James understands that the only reason he has come to believe in the Messiah is because God, through a very gracious gift, has brought new life to him. Look at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We have new life. We are able to pursue wisdom because of what the Messiah has done through his work and his resurrection. And now James's argument is that new life will be put on display in wise living. Look at chapter 1 and verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Look at chapter 2 and verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Wise living that comes from meeting the resurrected Messiah is the integration of what you say and how you live. Your beliefs and your actions begin to line up. They are complete. They are whole. It means, and James will teach us here, maturity is a growth toward wholeness and away from split loyalties and split lifestyles. James explains several times, it is very possible and I think very prevalent for us to deceive ourselves. We trick ourselves into thinking we have genuine faith and we're mature in the faith when in reality our lives and our motivations and our words do not reflect the faith we say we have. Chapter 1 and verse 22 be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. If you claim to be a Christian and you claim to be mature, pursuing maturity and it does not match, your lifestyle does not match what you claim, you are self-deceived. You're double-minded. That's another way James describes, describes this fracturing of our lives. We're not complete, we're not whole, we're double-minded. Chapter 1 and verse 8. Verse 7, let's start there. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Chapter 4 and verse 8. 
Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Give your hearts a singular focus, you double-minded. Being double-minded is the opposite of wholeness. Wisdom leads us toward purity in the sense of not necessarily sexual purity, but toward a single devotion to God and to his word. That's the opposite of wholeness, double-mindedness. To be double-minded is to be fractured, it's to be divided. I mean, imagine a football player who spends half of his practice time catching passes and the other half baking cupcakes. He is a double-minded man. He is not pure in his devotion to his craft. He has a split loyalty. And James says, wisdom from above requires a singular pursuit. You have to want wisdom. You have to want God. And you have to pursue it with everything you have. And that devotion, that focus brings wholeness. It brings spiritual maturity. Your actions and your words come together. So here's my desire for this study in James. I think this is a great book and will be so helpful to us. But here's where I want us to start. Flip over to chapter 4 and verse 6. You have to start here. I have to start here. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I mean, that, that is hard to hear. God opposes. You are on the opposite side from God. No matter what you may say, no matter what you may think, if you are proud, you are on the opposite team from God. He is opposed to you. But he gives grace to the humble. Those that listen to wisdom crying out in the streets and think, I'm simple, I'm naive, I need the wisdom from above. Those who humble themselves, they receive it. They receive grace. And so here's what I would say. Come into this series and put aside arrogance and put aside confidence in yourself. Put aside your expertise in spiritual things for a few weeks. Lay everything down and humble yourself before God. Ask him in a humble way to expose your heart, to draw it to the surface, all of your divided loyalties, all of the places where you say, oh, I believe, but then your, your words and your actions show a different commitment. Ask him to expose all of that Ask him to draw out your attempts to live by worldly, earthly wisdom. And then listen to this very influential figure in the early church. Listen to this man who was inundated with the teaching of his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. He heard it, he soaked in it, he thought about it, and then he taught it to us through this letter. Listen attentively and carefully with a desire to grow in wisdom so that you can be complete and whole and mature. 
Let God's wisdom change you and critique you in all of your double-minded ways because we all have them and we all need a singular focus. And then, as you'll see in this book, one of the maybe third major themes beside wisdom and wholeness is the idea of community. And we don't pursue this wisdom toward wholeness on our own, but we do this together as a church, and we need one another for that. And so let's focus on this book, let's learn wisdom, and let's grow together. Let's pray. Father, we certainly need your wisdom. You have offered your instruction to us. You have taught us how to live. And we need it, Lord. I pray this morning that we would humble ourselves before you. We would submit to your word. We would expose our hearts that we wouldn't guard ourselves and try to continue to keep our beliefs in one room and our actions and our words in another room, but that we would bring those together and submit them to your word. And I pray that you would change us and grow us in wisdom from above so that we can be mature and perfect and whole and complete and grow to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love for us, your love that does not leave us as double-minded and as split, but sanctifies us and fits us for heaven. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.